Hello, I'm David Moscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. For as long as anyone can remember, talk about deficits and the debt has been central to political life. How much can we spend? On what? What are the trade-offs? What will it cost? I mean, what will it really cost? If politics is about choosing, if it is about, as the classic phrase goes, who gets what, when, and how, then spending constraints are central to what makes it so. But what if deficits in the debt did not induce the constraints we thought? Modern monetary theory invites us to think about money and government spending in a new way, opening up possibilities that were seemingly out of reach before. But is the promise too good to be true? On this episode of Open to Debate, we take a look and ask, who's afraid of modern monetary theory? My guest is Stephanie Kelton, Senior Fellow at the Schwartz Center for Economic Policy Analysis, Professor of Economics and Public Policy at Stony Brook University, and author of The Deficit Myth, Modern Monetary Theory and the Birth of the People's Economy. Let's start by getting everyone on the same page about what modern monetary theory entails. Can you give us a rundown of what the core elements of the theory are? Sure. So first, I think it's important to recognize that MMT is really a lens. It's a descriptive economic framework that is intended to provide a better, more accurate description of the monetary system that exists in any particular country at any point in time and the spending capacities of the government under that monetary system. So think of a government that was still on a gold standard. MMT recognizes that the policy options available to the government are very different when the government is pledging to convert its currency into something that is finite, like gold, for example. Um, other countries over time have pledged to convert their own currencies into another country's currency. That's a fixed exchange rate system. And if you operate under a monetary system where you, the government, are promising to turn your currency into something else that is finite, that you might run out of, then you have to operate your budget very differently than if you are working with a currency like the Canadian dollar or the US dollar or the Japanese yen or the Australian dollar or many others. In these cases, governments are not promising to convert their currencies into anything else. And so we have what are known as floating exchange rate fiat currencies. And this opens up policy space for governments to operate their budgets, let's say, more aggressively. They don't have to worry about running out of gold or running running out of some other country's uh, currency. They can spend where the limit to their spending is not bankruptcy or insolvency. The limit is inflation. Now you you mentioned in your book, which I which I highly recommend. I mentioned it in the uh, introduction that this applies to uh, currency sovereigns. So I mean, this is particularly important, I think, to to get clear off the top in thinking of the United States and Canada, which are federations and have subnational bodies. Because I've seen lots of critiques of M- M- uh, MMT from people who plainly have no idea what they're talking about because they say, "Well, what's the province supposed to do?" And the answer is, "Well, nothing," because it's not a currency sovereign. So, can you talk about the the relationship between MMT and being a, a currency sovereign? 
Yes. So the the line in the sand that I think people should draw, at least, you know, a mental line in the sand is to distinguish between a currency issuer and a user of the currency. So the Canadian government is the issuer of the Canadian dollar. U.S. government is the issuer of the U.S. dollar. But individual states in the U.S. and provinces in Canada are not currency issuers. They are users of currency and they are, they face financial constraints that are diametrically opposed, very different from those, uh, faced by, um, by the federal government. The federal government is not financially constrained. A, pro- a province is and a state in the U.S. is. So, so in the U.S., individual states are really hurting right now. You have mayors and you know, cities and states. You have mayors and governors across this country that are, um, many of them, pleading with the federal government to get cash assistance to the state so that they can maintain essential services, pay teachers, firefighters, police officers, um, you know, cover hospital expenses and so forth. They cannot do what Congress can do. They can't do what the federal government can do. The, the reason that they're turning to the federal government for help is because the federal government isn't financially constrained in the way that states and municipalities are. And the same holds true in Canada with respect to the provinces. They cannot commit to spending money they do not have. The federal government can. So I want to come back to the the real constraint that you talk about uh, later, inflation, but also economic capacity. But before that, I want to get into the jobs guarantee. So the central to MMT is the idea of a jobs guarantee as a way to pursue full employment. Can you talk to us a bit about how that would work? Sure. Well, so the job guarantee is essentially think of the federal government as providing the financing and then creating uh, or supporting a program that creates an open-ended job offer for anybody who wants work but can't find a job anywhere else in the economy. The job guarantee says there is a job for you, okay? And the federal government will provide the financing But the jobs themselves, we hope, will be designed uh, from the bottom up. So the federal government doesn't know what type of work would be most useful in some small town in, say, southeastern Oklahoma. But the people living in the small town in southeastern Oklahoma do. They're in the community. They know the community best. They understand the needs, where the deficiencies are in the community. And so what we imagine is that you know, from as decentralized a place as possible, from the local level, um, people living in the communities would propose jobs. They say, you know, what we could really use in this community is an extra pair of hands uh, working as an aide in a classroom or an elder care facility, or we could really use someone to build uh, new bookshelves for the library because the bookshelves are all you know, falling apart or whatnot. I mean, there are any number of community gardens you can imagine, right? That uh, millions and millions of jobs could be created oriented around caring for people, caring for the community and caring for the planet. So this is care work, broadly speaking. And, you know, the idea is why should we lock out 
millions and millions of people who want a way to contribute to society. They want to be working and doing something, but there aren't jobs available for them. And MMT says, why not? Right. That's just that that's essentially, you know, what economists refer to as opportunity costs. Right. That we're letting this all slip through our fingers. This could be improving lives and supporting livelihoods for millions of people and helping us tackle a whole range of problems uh, in the community and society and our economy. Um, And so why not, you know, take that idle labor and allow people to make the contribution that they're desperate to make. And I'm, I, I'm trying to treat this episode a bit like, like jazz. Cause I know there's a lot of tension building among the listeners who are saying, how do we pay for this? But we're going to get there. I promise. So you'll, you'll get the, the relief of that note is presently, but, but first I want to get to one of the weaker, uh, I think points of understanding for a lot of, of critics, which is, you know, what about deficits under the MMT lens? It's not that deficits don't matter but they matter, as you've said, in different ways than we typically think. So uh, if, for all those saying, okay, well, how, well, how do, what do we do with a deficit? Is it, it just doesn't matter. Is this a free lunch? You know, the, the, that old trope, free lunch, comes up a bunch. Uh, I want to return to this idea that it's not that, that deficits don't matter. It's that they matter in different ways under MMT. What are those ways? Yeah, so it's funny, right? I mean, we have this debate happening literally right now as you and I are talking uh, on the Senate floor uh, where, you know, United States senators are standing up and saying the deficit is the reason that they are not going to support a more robust uh, relief package for the economy, coronavirus and an economic relief package, because, you know, the deficit. So the deficit matters for these guys when they want it to matter, right? It's a political football. It doesn't matter when they're pushing their tax cuts through. It matters again when you're trying to get cash into the hands of people who are struggling. Um, in MMT, we don't play this game. You know, it's not a political uh, football for us. All... Here's what we say in MMT. Deficits always matter. And every deficit is good for someone. Okay, so let's talk about that. What is this thing we call the deficit? Most people probably don't know. The deficit is just the difference between two numbers. That's all it is. One of the numbers is how many dollars the government spends into the economy each year. And the other number is how many they subtract back out, mostly through taxation. So when the government is adding spending more dollars into the economy than it subtracts back out, it gets labeled a deficit. So using very simple numbers, if the government spends $100 into the economy and it only taxes 90 of those dollars back out, it has run a fiscal deficit or a budget deficit. Somebody records a minus 10 on the government's books, but what they forget to do is to recognize that if the government puts 100 in and only takes 90 back out, somebody gets 10. That the government's deficit is nothing more than a financial contribution to some other part of the economy. So their red ink becomes the black ink on someone else's balance sheet. So anybody who wants to rail against deficits and and pledge that they're going to reduce the size of the deficit might as well go out there and tell voters, uh, vote for me because I am here to shrink your surplus. Because 
that's what happens when deficits are reduced, right? So the question isn't, do deficits matter? They always matter because every deficit is producing a financial surplus somewhere in some other part of the economy. The question is, for whom? right? Who's getting that $10? What is that deficit being used to accomplish in the economy? Are we feeding hungry kids? Are we fixing crumbling infrastructure? Are we building, you know, uh, a world-class healthcare and education system? Or are we using the deficits the way the Republicans use them in the U.S. a few years ago? And that is to do massive tax cuts that deliver that financial windfall to the people in society who least need the help. Every deficit is good for someone. And what do you say to the the question of of how you say finance debt uh, cost? I mean, how does that play into the theory when when you're servicing debt through interest rates, for instance? Okay, so MMT asks us to recognize first that a country like the like Canada or like the U.S. that when we talk about these countries, we are talking about countries where the government is the issuer of a sovereign currency. Okay, so if you could issue the currency, would you ever need to borrow your own currency from anyone else? The answer has to be no. The U.S. government doesn't need to borrow the U.S. dollar from anyone. It's the issuer of the U.S. dollar. The Canadian government doesn't have to borrow Canadian dollars from anyone in order to get the Canadian dollar. It's the issuer of the currency. So when we talk about the debt, what we're talking about is the outstanding stockpile of government bonds. And that's what this word we attach, this word debt, is very unhelpful, frankly, um, because it gets people very nervous because they start to think about their own personal debt and the difficulties they might have had, you know, servicing, as you said, servicing the debt. Um, you know, if you have credit card debt, there's an interest rate, you can make that minimum payment, but over time, watch the balance grow and you think, how am I going to get out from under this debt? It's, you know, uh, it, it's tough. So we think of the federal government too often with reference to our own personal finances. We shouldn't do that. Remember, the federal government issues the currency and we are users of the currency. So we have to operate our finances very differently. So now think, if you were a currency issuer, would you ever go out and borrow? I can't imagine why you would, right? Why take on debt if you could simply spend your own currency into existence, right? And and so now you think, well, okay, then why does the Canadian government, why does the U.S. government, why is there all this public debt out there? And people talk about you know, the the dangers and the burdens on next generation and that sort of stuff. This is all very misguided, um, you know, thinking. So let's talk about what really happens. So go back to my previous example. When the government runs a deficit, it chooses, and that word is important, okay? It's a choice. The government, your government and mine, choose to coordinate that deficit spending by selling bonds. Now, the government spends 100 in, taxes 90 away, it's run a deficit, right? $10 $10 deficit. So what it does is it comes along and it takes those $10 back out again and replaces them with 10 U.S. treasuries, with 10 government bonds. And so, you know, people look at that and they say the government is borrowing, it's going into debt. I don't do that. I don't look at it like that. 
I realized that the government has already made the financial deposit of $10. The deficit puts the money in and the bond sale or what gets called borrowing just turns those green dollars, if you like, that currency into a government bond that pays some interest. So the government is really choosing to replace some of its non-interest-bearing currency with interest-bearing form of, if you like, government money. And there's nothing inherently dangerous about it. There's nothing inherently irresponsible about it. You could say the government is just choosing to make some of its payments in the form of currency and some of its payments in the form of of government bonds. So now we get, I think, closer to the heart of of I think a lot of the concern around MMT, which is inflation. Now, if you're just if you're just issuing the currency through printing or money or digital keystrokes, uh, you know to borrow it, you do re- run the risk of inflation. I want to focus on inflation and not hyperinflation because I think a lot of the uh, of the stereotypes and canards and nonsense get into like well Venezuela. I, I mean I think that's that's nonsense, but I do want to focus on inflation itself. Mm-hmm. So the risk to spending into the economies that you generate inflation. Uh, How does MMT deal with that uh, critique or concern? Well, we center inflation risk. Uh, That's at the core of MMT. So in a sense, you know, you could argue, uh, and I would argue that MMT is hypersensitive about inflation, much more so than any other macroeconomic school of thought. that exists. I have, I mean, I teach, I've taught macro theory for almost 20 years, you know, from the introductory uh, first principles level through the PhD level. And, and so I'm familiar with all of the uh, major schools of thought. I don't think there is a single uh, theory in, in economics, a macro approach that takes inflation risk more seriously than MMT does. So what we're doing is replacing an artificial constraint right? We just say, look, the government is not financially constrained. Let's stop pretending that it is. So we take that revenue constraint, that financial constraint, and we throw it away. We say the constraint that matters is a real resource constraint. It's the economy's capacity to safely absorb any new spending the government authorizes. It's an inflation constraint. So now you say, well, how does MMT deal with inflation? And the answer is a complicated one because inflation is a complex, dynamic process. You don't just get inflation for one reason. There's not one single cause of inflation that um, you can always fight with a single kind of weapon, a single tool. So think about the way we fight inflationary pressures today, right? The central bank is in charge of maintaining price stability. And most central banks have chosen an inflation target of 2%. So the central bank says, I don't want to see prices, this is typical, right? I don't want to see prices go above 2% per year, right? Inflation rate. And if I start to get worried, what do I do? I raise interest rates. That's how I fight inflation. So under the current model, the central bank bears primary responsibility for managing inflationary pressures, and they essentially do it with a single tool. Like it's a one-size-fits-all, right? Um, what are the, what's the old saying? If all you have is a hammer, what's the saying? 
everything's a nail. Every problem looks Every like a nail. Problem yeah. looks like a nail. Yeah. That's it. So if all you have to fight inflation is, you know, the interest rate, then all inflation looks like a nail, right? MMT says, well, hold on, right? Because inflation can happen for lots of different reasons, not just one thing that triggers inflationary pressure or potentially does. So, you know, I think of it like, you know, suppose we finish this uh, interview and I go downstairs and I find that my basement is flooded. I say, oh, geez, I got a problem, right? My basement is full of water. I don't know where to run. I don't know what to do to fix the problem. I don't know if, um, you know, one of the kids left the faucet running somewhere in the house. I don't know if a toilet overflowed. I don't know if a pipe burst. I don't know if uh, the dishwasher's leaking. I, In order to address the problem, I've got to you know, do some forensic analysis, right? I have to figure out what's driving the the water into the basement. And I think the same, we should have kind of a similar approach to inflation. In order to figure out how to fight inflationary pressures, you have to know where they're coming from. So we build these things called price indices, like the CPI or the PCE index and others. And, you know, when there's upward movement in those indices, we say, oh, there's inflationary pressure. Yeah, but why? You know, look under the hood. What is causing the price index to go up? Is it um, a, a sudden acceleration in healthcare costs or education costs or energy costs? You see what I'm saying? Um, it, you wouldn't just say, oh, I see inflation and therefore I know to reach for this or that tool. You have to know, you know, if it's healthcare costs, for example, doesn't seem to me uh, particularly savvy to raise interest rates to fight that kind of inflationary pressure. Presumably that would make the problem worse, right? Right. You got people who can't afford their health care. So your solution is, well, we should drive up their borrowing costs and make their credit card bills go higher. Um, so I think that, you know, we need a much more sophisticated and nuanced approach to inflation. Just generally speaking, the economics profession does. Um, and so let me just give you uh, the MMT answer to the spending piece. Okay. Because uh, when I say that we center inflation risk, what I mean is if Congress was considering a bill like they are right now as we speak, uh, almost a trillion dollars, right? Congress is thinking, oh, I want to spend uh, close to a trillion dollars on another relief package for the economy. They are not offsetting that spending, meaning there's no tax increase to go along with that uh legislation. There's no proposal to cut money from some other part of the budget. They're just going to authorize about a trillion dollars of new spending. So the question is, from an MMT perspective, is that a safe thing to do? Now, I think in the current environment, virtually everyone will agree uh, that it's a safe thing to do in the sense that it's not going to cause inflation to accelerate out of control. This economy is so depressed that, you know, another trillion dollars in government spending to support the economy is not going to lead to people having too much money, chasing too few goods, the economy can't keep up with all the demand and prices go higher. At some point, though, you could imagine an economy that is operating much closer to full employment, where the capacity to safely absorb more and more spending is diminished and disappearing. 
And so if Congress were to continue sending out big checks, you know, supporting the unemployed or, or, well, not the unemployed, we're moving into a full employment economy. If Congress was just continuing to spend, you know, multi-trillion dollar uh, legislation every so often, that would present a problem, right? You would, you would reach the point where that spending becomes inflationary. And so the, the, the question is, is then how do you regulate spending? Now, this gets, I think, to what I would say is the most reasonable, plausible critique of MMT, which is that with, with central banks running things, you have technocrats in, in capitals uh, or around the country trying to manage these problems, uh, you know, insulated to some degree uh, from the population. Now, we can talk about how democratic that is in a, in a separate debate, but uh, that's more or less how it works. And sort of only tangentially connected to politicians. Uh, under a different approach, you would transfer a lot of that that power to politicians. Uh, now, does MMT then rely on politicians to do the right thing in the right way at the right time? And if that's the case, can we can we actually make that work? All right. So a couple of things. I know that there are people who believe that it would be too risky to do what MMT suggests, which is to place more of the responsibility for managing the economy through the business cycle to, to creating a healthy economy, to maintaining a full employment economy. MMT says, you know what? We have put too much uh, of the burden on central banks. They can't do it. Okay, and we shouldn't ask them to bear all of the responsibility for maintaining a full employment economy with low inflation. They don't have the tools. Is that the idea? They just don't. They, that's the idea, right? They essentially have a tool. I mean, you know, they can get creative as they did after 2008, the financial crisis, doing things like quantitative easing and forward guidance and all this, you know, they'll do what they think they can try to do and they can get creative and other central banks are buying, you know, buying corporate bonds and ETFs and this kind of stuff. You know, you push them uh, so far because you say, well, it's your job, you fix it. And they don't have the tools. So they scramble and they get creative and they think, well, we'll just throw everything at the problem and see if anything works. Typically, though, the central bank's tool is an overnight interest rate. That's what they got. And if you think, if you believe that, you know, changing one price in the whole of the economy is all it takes to bring balance to everything right? You can create a full employment economy with uh, 2% inflation. And all you have to do is turn this little interest rate dial, nudge it up a little, nudge it down a little, try to find the sweet spot where you keep just the right amount of unemployment in the system to prevent wages and prices from going higher. That's what the central bank tries to do now, right? To figure out how much unemployment is needed to hold inflation in check and then you call that, you know, maximum employment or full employment. MMT says, no, no, hang on. You are the Federal Reserve, uh, but Congress bears responsibility to the people, right? This is an elected body. Government is elected body. Central bankers are not elected, right? They they bear uh, no they have no accountability to voters in the way that our elected officials do. So why shouldn't our elected officials be more responsible and more responsive to changing economic conditions? Now, 
does MMT say that they're going to be, you know, um, agile enough to respond and work together and move the policy levers in the right direction at the right time to sustain full employment? No. Um, to the extent that we can make the steering wheel, if you like, the economic steering wheel turn on its own so that you have sort of a driverless component to the budget, it will work even better. And economists call that automatic stabilizers, where the steering wheel takes over, right? And if the economy is going into the ditch, the automatic stabilizers automatically produce higher spending or lower taxes, um, to help support the economy. And as the economy recovers, the automatic stabilizers do the opposite. They automatically reduce the amount of fiscal support, the size of the deficit, um, to keep the economy on an even keel, right? So you can build a lot of this in, and the job guarantee that we talked about earlier is a powerful way to do that, to create an automatic stabilizer that when the economy is weak and millions of people are losing jobs, they get absorbed, they get hired into the public service employment program and government spending goes up because the government is paying the wages and benefits of those folks. And then as those people transition back into other uh, work in the private sector or elsewhere, government spending automatically decreases. So that all happens without Congress doing anything. Right. Whereas today we rely on unemployment, not employment. We rely on unemployment. Um, and then we fight and we watch Congress fail to extend unemployment benefits as the economy remains weak. It takes another act of Congress and another act of Congress. And, you know, it's not working too well. We we can't seem to get it together here. So um, the more that you can do to automate some of these responses, the better, because governments uh, are dysfunctional. But you know what? I'll just end on this note. I think that a lot of the dysfunction is actually a byproduct of the fact that we've given the responsibility to the central bank, that Congress doesn't feel, that parliaments, members of parliament do not feel that it is their job to get it together and to move legislation and to support the economy because you know the the statute is that it's the central bank's job to fix the economy to maintain uh, full employment so congress can kind of throw their hands up and say well it's not my job right and and i think that's unfortunate and i think it uh, you know shifting responsibility back to toward the elected officials is will over time get us a, a more responsive, I, I think, because then everybody will point the finger at them and say, this is your job and why aren't you fixing it? I, it's it's worth noting the point that this is a statutory arrangement and not, and not a constitutional one too. I mean, I, you know, people must assume at some level that this is just sort of baked into the system inherently part of it. And it's always been the case. Uh, it's It's worth reminding listeners that it's the case both in the United States and Canada that that the the central bank arrangement with with Parliament is statutory, not constitutional. I mean, they could change it overnight if they preferred to, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. the The Federal Reserve was created through an act of Congress. Uh, it's the Federal Reserve Act that uh, created the Fed. The Fed is responsible to Congress. They answer to Congress. 
they will do, as Ben Bernanke uh, said some number of years ago um, in the wake of the financial crisis. And, you know, he goes in to give routine testimony before Congress. And one of the things he said was, um, we'll do whatever Congress tells us to do. And that is, in fact, the case. They they are responsive and responsible to Congress. So in the closing minutes, I want to close out on two questions, and one of them is related to central banks. I mean, does MMT imply sort of the end of old monetary theory and, and monetary policy as it currently exists? I mean, what happens to the central banks if governments adopt an, an MMT approach? Well, I again, I want to be a little careful about you know, saying adopt an MMT approach because, you know, I started off saying MMT is a descriptive project. We're explaining the nature of the monetary system and the um, mechanics of government finance. So you don't have to change a thing. We're describing how it all works today with the central bank doing what the central bank does today. But what we recognize is that we have, um, for too many decades, leaned too heavily on central banks, put too much responsibility on them to lay the foundation for a sustainable recovery, that their tools um, not only aren't as durable as fiscal policy tools, but they might not even work the way the central bank thinks that they work. Um, Look, monetary policy works, quote unquote, by driving people into debt. That's how it's designed to work. When the central bank wants to give the economy a little shot in the arm, right, to boost job creation and economic growth, it cuts the interest rate. Well, why does it do that? Well, to make it cheaper for people to borrow and spend. And that spending is what supports employment and economic activity. So you need people to borrow and borrowing for the rest of us is not like borrowing for the federal government. You're asking currency users to leverage up, to take on debt. And it's not to say that, you know, any borrowing by the private sector is inherently uh, a bad idea. It's not. It's just to say that when you rely on monetary policy to do the heavy lifting, what you're doing is saying, uh, we have to try to create uh, the right conditions so that people are willing to go out and borrow a lot of money and, and spend in the economy. Fiscal policy works by driving income into people. You own that cash free and clear. So these $1,200 checks that are being debated right now in Congress, that's fiscal policy. If those checks go out, Millions of families are going to go to the mailbox and find a $1,200 check sitting there, and they own that cash free and clear. They don't have to pay that back. Monetary policy works by driving people into debt. Fiscal policy works by driving income into people. It's different, right? The dollars show up on your on your balance sheet, and they're yours now. So, um, you know, the central bank can will still exist. The central bank can still play with interest rates if. You know, people think that's the way to manage uh, credit conditions and to have some impact on economic activity. That's fine. MMT doesn't uh, doesn't think that's a very good idea. We would prefer to see central banks set interest rates, um, the overnight interest rate at zero and leave it there permanently. That doesn't mean there's no role for central banks. Central banks manage the payment system. They are the key player when in in a financial crisis to act as a lender of last resort. There is a whole lot they can do 
to um, influence uh, lending that doesn't have anything to do with relying on interest rates, right? There's a whole suite of tools uh, available and that could be made available to central banks that would give them broader scope for conducting monetary policy, more ways to do monetary policy. Uh, so MMT doesn't challenge or threaten the central bank. We just recognize that the interest rate is a blunt uh, instrument. And at best, it it works in you know interest-sensitive sectors like housing and automobiles. Um, but the transmission mechanism to the real economy is weak and, uh, and we shouldn't be relying on it. In, in the final minute, I want to close on this really quickly. Uh, although a, a rather complicated question quickly, but uh, has COVID reinforced the need for, for instance, a jobs guarantee, a job guarantee? Has it reinforced the, the need to rethink of uh, rethink the way we, we consider uh, what our capacities and capabilities are? I think so. I mean, if you look at the um, time that it has taken to claw back jobs that have been lost in the last several recessions, each successive recession, it takes longer and longer and longer to um, restore just the raw number of jobs that are lost in the downturn. After the 2008 financial crisis, I think it took 76 months for the labor market to um, you know, claw back the, the number of jobs that were lost in that uh, economic downturn. And when the jobs came back, they were, in most instances, inferior to the jobs that were lost. They were lower hours and lower wage jobs. So it's not just enough to get the jobs back. You want to get back jobs that are at least as good as the jobs you lost. And our labor market, we don't do that. This, uh, we cannot afford another, um, you know, so-called recovery where it takes six or seven years to restore employment for people. It, we, can, we can't afford to do it. And with a job guarantee, those jobs can come back immediately. Right. And and so I think that we're in a situation, especially now, you know, with Congress that a Congress that's doing far too little to support a recovery. Um, my concern is that we could be looking at, you know, uh, another um, so-called recovery where 10 million, 15 million, 20 million people are essentially left behind. They're locked out. Long-term unemployment is increasing. The number of jobs that were initially thought to be temporary that have become permanent are increasing. And so, yes, I think that, uh, you know, COVID um, has strengthened the case for something like a, a job guarantee to come in and, and help people, you know, restore livelihoods and, um, and get this economy in a, in a genuine uh, and sustainable economic recovery. Well, that brings us to time. Thank you very much, Stephanie Hilton, for, for joining me today. The, the book is The Deficit Myth, Modern Monetary Theory and the Birth of the People's Economy. I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, so first of all, my thanks to you for joining me. Well, thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed our conversation. Uh, me too. And, and thanks, as always, to Aaron Reynolds and Mira Ahmad, who make this podcast possible, and to all of you for listening. 
We look forward to speaking with you again here in a couple of weeks. Thanks so much.